Now, there's something to always remember that the Ten Commandments were not given for salvation. They're not a ladder to heaven. They were never given to the Old Testament people, nor are they given to us that if we keep these ten laws, we will then meet God's standard and get into heaven. No, they are given to a people who are saved, who are redeemed, and they are given to us that we may walk in the light as He is the light. Now, the power of all true religion lies in love for God and man. You remember the royal commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your fellow man as thyself. Welcome again to Let the Bible Speak. We're continuing with our series in Exodus, God's people set free that they may worship and serve the Lord. Freedom and liberty in the Christian life is not a license to sin, but it is enablement that we may walk with God, worship Him, and witness for Him as well. Now we're coming to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. The text is, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and in sins. Never allow anyone to tell you that the gospel is not logical. Don't allow anyone to tell you that God's plan of salvation is mindless. Rather, it is the greatest wisdom this world has ever known. Firstly, there is a plan. Secondly, it is a plan that works every time. And thirdly, it works in the worst of cases, even sinners who are dead in trespasses and sins. Following along as I read these few verses in Ephesians chapter 2, I want you to pick these things up as we come to this message today. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus." that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. We dealt with the turning point of the gospel in Ephesians 2.5, but God, who is rich in mercy. The turning point is really the heart of God. He is rich in mercy. He is not said to be rich in wrath. He's not said to be rich in punishing sinners. Now, he must do that because he is just and holy. But the overflowing part of God, if you will, the thing that for which God is to be known and trusted is his delight to deal in mercy. The fact is further expounded in the next clause, for his great love wherewith he loved us. This is the heart of the gospel message, and it's God's heart. If we don't grasp that, the gospel comes out of the overflowing heart of God, we miss the whole message and its meaning. God is abounding in infinite love, eternal love, and personal love toward those whom he has saved. Paul refers to us, and he is writing to the saints at Ephesus who trusted in Christ. Christians know the truth that God has set his love on them. But the wonder of it is that he didn't start loving us when we turned to be Christians. God loved us, and I'm going to read verse 5, even when we were dead in sins notwithstanding the fact that we were dead, sold out to sin. While we reveled in sin, and we wallowed in it as the pig in the mire, 
while we boasted in the sin world, for our natures were craving after gratification of the flesh. Even then, God loved us. Yes, even while we were partying in our sin, God was overflowing in mercy toward us. What did he do? Well, he did what was absolutely necessary to save fallen, sin-loving men and women. He put new life in us. The Bible says he quickened us. That means to regenerate or to put spiritual life into our souls. That is the beginning of salvation. It answers the sin problem that has corrupted the total nature of man and left him dead in trespasses and sins. How does God do that? Well, it is his Spirit at work. Paul points out that it is by union with Christ. Jesus, the very one who came into the world to give life to men, in him is life, Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So when you join a dead sinner to Jesus, the soul comes alive. It is like getting plugged into the power system. Life comes flowing into the soul. There is a resurrection of the sinner to become a new person, a Christian. What happened to Lazarus when Jesus commanded, come forth, happens in the soul of the regenerated man or woman that was dead in sin. The conclusion of the matter, Paul says, is this, by grace are ye saved. Grace is God's love flowing down to an unworthy sinner. All of this adds up to one thing. Salvation is of the Lord. It is all of grace. Paul is building a case for his classic gospel text. By grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Let this thrill your heart today. Now we move to our message on the law of God, Exodus chapter 20. Right, we come to these Ten Commandments, the first commandment in particular in Exodus 20 and verse 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Let me ask, how many people in their lifetime have heard a sermon on this commandment? An entire sermon. Well, we've had a few here. How many people in the last 10 years heard a sermon on the first commandment? One, two, three or so. Uh, there's probably a lot of people here, younger, the younger uh, in our families of our church, uh, that need, I, I think, a message like this that will cause us to ponder what we call the bedrock foundation of our faith, these Ten Commandments. After all, we, we shout and scream when we find that there are schools that get them out, or public buildings or government offices where these Ten Commandments are no longer to be displayed in public, and we ask, what's happening in our society and in our government places? But then we think about churches, churches just like our own, and uh, where is the emphasis on the Ten Commandments. And I think the answers to, to my questions underlines that we really do need to give this great attention. Now, the value of the Ten Commandments, of course, should be a, a no-brainer. It was given here in a very unique history. 
And that's why I wanted to read back just that little bit into chapter 19 and how God, in a very solemn manner, dealt with Moses and Aaron and fenced around the people from ascending into the mount. And then, of course, we know that it was written by the finger of God on those uh, literal stone tablets. There's a permanency to these Ten Commandments. There's nothing temporary about it. And, of course, we could follow that line of thinking, that that law was given even in the Garden of Eden. It was given in the days of Noah. It was known by the patriarchs. The moral law of God was already there from creation right through to Moses. It was preached by the prophets right up to the days of Christ. When you go to Matthew 5, to the Sermon on the Mount, what emphasis our Lord gave to the commandments— and he took it up to a higher spiritual level. You have the apostles. They preached and emphasized every one of these Ten Commandments, not on a particular list, but in the application of the gospel. And so, if we are a Christian, we must be deeply interested in the foundation of the Ten Commandments. The other thing to note is that it's based on liberty. Many imagine, well, boy, this church is really going down the road of legalism uh, if you're going to start the preaching on the Ten Commandments. But remember what we learned a few weeks ago, that this was given to Israel after they were brought out of bondage, after they were redeemed and set free. And if you're a Christian today, and you've been set free by the power of the gospel— the law of God is not grievous to you. It's not a burden to you. But you can say with the Apostle Paul, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. Why? Because by the gospel, by the new birth, the law is written in our hearts. It's not our enemy. It's not our master. But rather, it is our liberty and our great delight. These Ten Commandments also are a sufficient summary of the obedience that God requires of us. You know, it's like opening the door and letting the horse out. Which way is it going to run? Is it going to go that direction or that direction? And when you become a Christian and you are in Christ, saved by grace, you say, well, how now do I serve God? Here's the summary. Here is the short list of how we may glorify, bring pleasure to the heart of God by our daily living. Now, let me tell you that these Ten Commandments are indeed a summary. It's like, it's like powder soup. And you can take a little packet of that soup, put it in a big pot, and make gallons of soup with it. And these Ten Commandments are, are, are the concentrated message of how to live for God. And it ought to multiply in every facet of our lives. Also, these Ten Commandments are meant to unify God's people. If we dismiss the Ten Commandments, throw them overboard, what way are we going to steer the ship? And you might want to go one way, and another Christian here wants to go another way, and there's nothing that unifies us anymore. How will we know what's right and wrong? How will we know what's good or evil? How do we know what should be disciplined and what should be encouraged? But as Christians, we have all the answers to that. We are, ought to be a God-like 
God-loving, God-fearing people. And this is the, the short list in how to unify our hearts and minds on this. Now, there's something to always remember that the Ten Commandments were not given for salvation. They're not a ladder to heaven. They were never given to the Old Testament people, nor are they given to us that if we keep these ten laws, we will then meet God's standard and get into heaven. No, they are given to a people who are saved, who are redeemed, and they are given to us that we may walk in the light as He is the light. Now, the power of all true religion lies in love for God and man. You remember the royal commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your fellow man as thyself. Think on this. Here's a little double-barred statement. The meaning of the law is expressed by love, and the meaning of love is expressed by law. Let me give you that again. The meaning of the law is expressed by love. And the meaning of love is expressed by law. Jesus said it, If ye love me, keep my commandments. This is now the expression. It is the way that we show forth that we love our God, that we have no other God, and He is first and foremost in our lives. Now, we come to the value of this first commandment, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And, of course, it is the first in order because, well, you've got to get the right God. If you get the wrong God, doesn't matter how you live, doesn't matter what rules you have, doesn't matter what sacrifices you make, doesn't matter uh, what empire you might build, if you've got the wrong God, you're lost. We must have the right God, the true God. And this commandment tells us that there is none other. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And we see here that we need a right relationship with the one and only true God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me means we need a right relationship with the one and true God. Can you agree with that? Does that sit right with you? Does that sound like truth? Biblical? What would we say to the person who has never, ever had exposure to the Bible before? We would say to them that if you're going to make any progress in, in religion, any progress in, in your walk, you've got to come to this first commandment and enter into a right relationship with the one and only true God. Now, let's remember also that our Lord Jesus came into the world. We are New Testament Christians. We are believers in the 21st century. We're not living way back in the wilderness where Moses was. And I, as the preacher today, have got to take this word, this history, these commandments, and make them relevant to you and me in Cloverdale, in our daily walk, and our personal faith with the Lord Jesus. And we need to remember that the Lord Jesus came into the world that He would be a finger post to the true God. Jesus said, He that honors me honors the Father. 
And so this applies to Christians. It applies to everyone that is truly trusting in the Lord Jesus. So we come to this commandment, and we see that honoring the first commandment requires love for God. That's almost stating the obvious, isn't it? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the love of God is based on a true knowledge of Him. Did you know that you can hate what you don't know? There are people that you hate, but you've never met them. You know nothing about them, but you hate them. Why? Because you've heard things, but you have no real knowledge of that person or that system. You have no experience of it. And you can hate something you don't know, but you can't love someone you don't know. You can't love someone you don't know. And so when you say that you're going to make God your God, your first duty is to know Him. And all that is required in seeking after the knowledge of the true living God is required upon you. And this true God requires the worship of every one of His creatures. The law was first introduced, as I said, in the Garden of Eden, and God revealed Himself to Adam and Eve and His ways. It was upheld by the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. It was known even in those 400 years in Egypt, because they said, set us free that we may worship our God. And those entrapped, enslaved people knew that there was no other God that they could worship. All the gods of Egypt, they could not bow down to them. They wanted to be free to worship Him. Now, this is certainly the truth of Christianity. There is no other God. I want to give you a few verses on this because, you know, I can rattle off these statements, but I want you to come to your Bible, and let's go to what I would call a, a, a really key verse a key chapter, Isaiah chapter 45, Isaiah 45 and verse 22. Now, if you have a Bible marker, I'd like you to mark Isaiah 45, put a string in it or your, your little tab that's in your Bible. We, we will come back to this. But you'll notice here in Isaiah 45, 22, uh, that Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. There is none else. And so God calls you to take this position. You cannot have a right relationship with God and make other gods. It's a, it's a given. It's an absolute. And you're called to love and to serve Him. You're commanded to seek after Him with all your heart. I trust that's why you're here today. I trust that's why you carry a Bible. I trust that's why you want to engage in public worship, because you want to seek the only one living and true God. We must not neglect God's revelation of Himself in His Word. To neglect your Bible, to neglect public worship and the ministry of the Word, would be to fail to obey this commandment. We must not neglect either the revelation of God in His Son. This brings us to Christianity now. It brings us to our profession of faith in the Lord Jesus. 
And if you make God your God, you must accept his Son. You must be rightly related to him and walking in the light of his word. Now, we are warned in Psalm 2, verse 12, to kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way, because Jesus is God, and he is God's Son, and he's the revelation of the Father. In Hebrews, Hebrews, we're told that he is the express image of the Father. He is that likeness by which we know the Father. And so, in this commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me, it does require that we trust in, rejoice in his Son, the Lord Jesus, and we are to love him with all our hearts. It also means that we've got to delight in Calvary. And I put on this heading that honoring the first commandment requires love to God. It's not just in the head. It's not just in what we write, but it's what's the, the desire, the, the thrill of our heart. It's what is in our heart. And that's why we've got to remember Calvary, because there God has displayed his love for us, and there God poured out his wrath upon his own Son, and God revealed his mercy and his grace to us. And so we love God, and we praise him for Calvary, because God planned it, and God demonstrated his love to us. Indeed, you cannot stop at Sinai. If we stop at Sinai, we will become legalists. If we stop at Sinai, we will say, well, we can get to heaven, we can get right with God by the law. No, Sinai must lead us to Calvary. It must show us that we are sinful, that we are incapable of the holiness that God requires to be saved. Sinai preaches to us guilt, 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 sin, failure, and Sinai must drive us to Calvary, because there God displayed his love. And you cannot know, you cannot be rightly related to the God of Sinai unless you trust him as the God of Calvary, who gave his Son to save us from our sins. Now, our second heading is this. Honoring the first commandment requires well, number one was love. Secondly, it requires loyalty to God. Because the, the commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The notion of other gods is a lie, is a lie. And God emphasized, and he punctuated this again and again, the, the, I am the Lord, the one and true God. There is beside me, there is none else. And it says, ye shall not go after other gods. Not because they are real, not because they have in themselves some power, but because they're a lie. Other gods are a lie. They are pretense, fake and phony. Now, let's go back to Isaiah 45. And let's look at these none-else statements that are right here in this passage. Isaiah 45 and verse 5. 
There's a number of Nunel statements here. For Jacob, my servants, uh, I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. And so, to, to say that there's another God is a lie. Then also look at the—where um, are we at here? Verse 6, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Verse 14, thus saith the Lord, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Ethiopia and of the Sabians, men of stature shall come over unto thee, and they shall be thine. They shall come after thee. In chains shall they come over, and they shall fall down unto thee, and they shall make supplication unto thee, saying, Surely God is in thee, and there is none else. There is no God. Verse 21, the end of the verse, and there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Now, the question arises, if all other gods are a lie, they're fake, they're phony, and they have no real power in themselves, they are the gods of men's imagination, whether it is the sun or the moon or some star, or some other object that men turn into a god, if they are a lie and are powerless, why does God take all this so seriously? And why does He give a commandment like this and warn us against this? Well, it's because while gods or false gods are a lie, they still corrupt men. Because the reality is that men become like what they worship. And idolatry always leads to, uh, as one pointed out, bestiality. In Romans 1, we read of how men turned the knowledge of the Creator into the creature. And instead of worshiping the true God, worshiped creatures, four-footed beasts, things of the earth that creep on the earth. And what is the result? Deep depravity, Romans 1. The result of idolatry is always immorality. In the temples of Greece, Rome, they were places of prostitution, uncleanness, unspeakable wickedness. And when men follow a lie, turning away from the true God, and they turn to idols and objects of their own making, they plummet into the depths of corruption. It happens every time. And when our missionaries go to places that have never known the gospel, that's what they discover. And in the West and parts of the world that has rejected the gospel, what is the trend of men from the knowledge of God that they reject? It's always to un. This is Pastor Ian Golliher. Call me, please, at 604-897-2040. For all the details of our broadcasts across Canada, go to ltbs.ca.
This broadcast comes to you today from the Free Presbyterian Church in Cloverdale, located at 18790 58th Avenue, Surrey, at the corner of 188th Street and 58th Avenue. Our website is cloverdalefpc.ca, and there you can find gospel articles, links to our sermons, a gospel booklet called A New Beginning, and a link to watch our services online. You're warmly invited to attend any of our Sunday services at 10.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. to meet with us as we worship God and to hear the preaching of His precious Word. We also meet for Bible study and prayer every Wednesday evening at 7.30 p.m. Our Sunday School for Children and Adult Bible Class meet every Lord's Day at 9.30 a.m. from September to June. You can contact us at 604-567-1091. Alternatively, you can email me at pastor.cloverdalefpc at gmail.com. Again, for all this information, please visit our website at cloverdalefpc.ca. Our burden is that you will hear and understand the gospel that will bring you to know the Lord Jesus Christ and his great salvation. This is Pastor Andrew Fitton. Thank you for listening today. And be sure to listen Monday to Friday at 5 a.m. and 5 p.m. and on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. for our one-hour church service as we worship the Lord through the ministry of His Word.